We've just turned the calendar to a new year. What better time to turn the page to a more fulfilling life? That's exactly the journey Beyond the Crucible has charted for you in our e-course, Discover Your Second Act Significance. The three-module video course will equip you to transform your life from, is this all there is, to, this is all I've ever wanted. Each session is led by Beyond the Crucible founder Warwick Fairfax, who shares his own hard-won successes in turning trials into triumphs. And he's got some high-powered help from USA Today's gratitude guru to a runner-up on TV's Project Runway. It's an ensemble of men and women living significant second acts who would command a six-figure price tag if any business wanted to fill an auditorium with them to coach their employees. But we've packed their insights and action steps into our course for a sliver of that cost. And if you act before the end of January, you'll get 23% off your enrollment. Just visit secondactsignificance.com and use the code 23for23. So don't delay. Enroll today. And remember, life's too short to live a life you don't love. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. There are an awful lot of people, I suppose the younger uh, people in the market who are like, you know, they want to be successful and significant at the same time. They want to know their their, their business has worth. And so we, we want to help them say, okay, do you stay where you are and do something differently? Do you, are you being called to somebody? Are you, we, we want to be in those conversations. critical component of Beyond the Crucible's recipe for discovering your unique path to a life of significance is to develop a strong team of advisors to help you lean into your gifts and passions along the journey. This week, Warwick talks to two men serving in that role to men and women all along the age and stage spectrum. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Our guests on this episode are Tom McGee, who you just heard from, and Jim Stolberg, the co-executive directors of Halftime, an organization that helps professionals of all stripes focus on looking for moments and experiences in their lives on and off the clock that deepen the sense of purpose with which they're living. As you'll hear Jim explain, an essential part of finding that balanced, rewarding life is making sure what you say are your most important values are truly the things you're spending your time and attention on. If they're not, Halftime and its associated group, Thousandfold, will help you identify the disconnect and rearrange the pieces. Well, thanks guys so much. Uh, I love what you both do at Halftime. And, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends uh, from Halftime guys in Australia, uh, Glenn Williams and John Sycamore and some folks that have helped uh, to signal Cheryl Fowler with branding and all with both of us, a lot of common uh, connections and just your whole mission of helping folks find significance, not just success. And really, I think there, as you say in um, Ephesians 2.10, there's sort of God-given purpose. I just love ex- what you do. I'm so behind it. It's sorely needed. But before we get to halftime, and you've made some changes recently instead of helping it to evolve for this next generation, I'd love to hear a bit about your stories because you know that's obviously part of how you ended up at halftime. So I'd love to start with uh, Tom and just uh, tell us a bit about your story and some of the background uh, that makes you who you are and uh, part of the backstory that's led to where you are now. Well, you know, um... I mean, I've, I've ended up in a place that I, you know, I've helped a lot of organizations with strategy and planning, and I've ended up in a place I never could have strategized or planned to get, to take me to, right? So I don't know what it says about my strategic ability, but it, uh, <laughs> you know, it it really is true. I just feel like uh, I've got a strong faith. I feel like God's just led me to a place, and and, and His hand has kind of been on me through good and bad to, to bring me here. You know, my 
my father was a, a general in the Air Force, was a career Air Force, U.S. Air Force officer. Uh, he, I was the son he always wanted. I have an older sister. Uh, he loved me unconditionally. I had a mom, candidly, who was a little embarrassed to be pregnant at a little bit of an older age. And I came along and it wasn't. So I kind of grew up in a house where on one end I was really cherished and loved. And on the other end, I was sort of almost tolerated and not, you know, a lot of motherly affection. And so you grow up feeling really good about yourself, but still feeling like there's something you ought to try to earn, you know, and that's kind of wrestled with me my whole life. Uh, you know, went through college and decided I wanted to follow kind of my dad's footsteps in the military, went in the Marine Corps, got to do some great things there from uh, worked at uh, the Marine Barracks in Washington, D.C., uh, where we did all the security at Camp David. We did all the ceremonies for the White House. I stood up. I got to command one of the first special operations battalion, a company in a battalion in the Marine Corps when that was first formed. Thought I'd have a career. Uh, got passed over for promotion. And uh, that was probably a kind of a professional crucible, you know, pushed, pushed me out. What am I going to do now? And um, that series of events that have landed me from corporate work to a uh, consulting partnership to my own company to focusing more on ministry to here. Uh, this whole time, my uh, well, I got married right out of college. We've been married 43 years this year. Uh, and my wife has just been a, um, a helpmate and a steadfast support, Re really even helping me overcome a lot of my own selfishness, my own doubts, my own, you know, things. She's been beside uh, at my side and just helped me through that. And so today we have uh, three adult kids and 10 grandkids. And we're, you know, really blessed. They all live in the Dallas area. We all get together. We had four, uh, the kind of crucible on the personal side. Our oldest son uh, died about 13 years ago in a motorcycle accident. And uh, that followed about a 10-year battle with drinking and some drugs, which itself was just sort of this prolonged crucible. You know, that's that was probably the harder time because you don't see an end and you don't know what's going to happen. The, the death, as hard as it is, is finite. And now you can kind of figure out what to do. So those are some of the things I think that have shaped my life all along from, you know, where I, where I started to just being able to now work with really sort of high capacity leaders all over the world that are that are trying to do more for others and more beyond themselves is just a working with somebody like Jim is just a a blessing. I when this this opportunity came up, I asked uh, my wife if she thought I should take it. She said, "I think God's been preparing you for this your whole life." And I said, "Well, that's that's you know <laughs> at, at this age and kind of like figuring out how you want to finish." Well, it's like, I'll take that, you know? And so that's me. <laughs> it sounds, sounded like a yes, right? Yeah. 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 I'm going to take that and run with it. I'm not going to ask twice. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, we're going to dialogue a bit about this in, in a bit, but um, I'd love to hear just uh, Jim, kind of your story and your background that kind of, again, probably the Lord used that to lead you to where you are. But yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, about Jim Stolberg and just you know your background and upbringing. Yeah, I'd love to. And next time, can I go first? Because like listening to Tom's story, like, <laughs> mine's just not as interesting. Um, hey, how do you think I feel? I co-host a podcast with a guy who lost two point two five billion dollars. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I totally get it, Gary. Um, so yeah, uh, so born and raised in Wisconsin. Uh, I am a lifelong. Uh, Wisconsin. I have traveled the world through my career, but never uprooted. And uh, I think that has made, I guess, some some uniqueness to my life in that I still have, matter of fact, I just had a call with some friends that I've known since I was in kindergarten and first grade, right? I mean, relationships that go back to, you know, my roots uh, and then all the way through college and, and so forth. Um, so uh, have my family here. I've been married to Leslie for 31 years uh, I am blessed to have a very understanding wife and two kids that have just recently started adulting. They finished uh, college and now they're off on their own. And uh, we're, we're sort of transitioning into what does it mean to be a parent of of somebody adulting, right? So it's all really all good. Kind of grew up in a classic middle class fam American family. My, my my father was a a barber and my mother worked in the school and um, very loving family. Um, you know, we, we, the only thing I would say kind of missing from my young years was, I think I have a faith as well. And, um, that was not stirred. We didn't have a home church 
It wasn't something that was, I think for my parents, it was more of a, uh, that's a private matter. You know, it's an internal personal thing, not a public thing. And so that sort of carried with me until the point I went to college and I went to Marquette University here in Milwaukee, which is a Catholic Jesuit uh, university. And at that point, it started to really, um, I would say, claw away at what was happening inside of me. I started to explore more about what my faith could be and obviously got a great education out of it, graduated with my engineering degree, and then realized I was a really lousy engineer. Um, but So I went into management consulting. Uh, what do you do when you don't know where you're going to go? You go into management consulting. I did that for 10 years <laughs> and uh, really accelerated my career and kind of put me on what I later realized was a treadmill. Right? I, I had, for whatever reason, uh, sort of a chip on my shoulder. I was the first one in my family to go to college, really the first among my friends. And so I really felt like um, my career was an opportunity to differentiate myself, right? To be successful. And and, and I pursued it with a vengeance. And, um, you know, that got me through my early years in management consulting and then with another firm uh, doing automation. And um, it was very professionally gratifying, but it was just sort of consuming my life. And I think my, so my, my crucible, I would say was not so much an event. I kind of think of it as, um, you know, the, the, what's the uh, metaphor of, you know, how do you boil a frog, right? You just, you just keep turning up the heat. I, I, you know, my career that just kept turning up the heat and I kept absorbing it and, and the way the world works, right? If you're successful, they keep throwing more titles at you and more money at you. And, uh, boy, I love that. And that that sort of kind of defined my who I was as a person and didn't realize how much it was distracting from the rest of my life. And um, that sort of hit a culmination in 2016. We we uh, had the opportunity to sell the company. And that was the event that really allowed me to take a step back and pause and and really dive into what was why am I here, essentially, and wh- what do I do? Um, and that, that was a real catalytic event. And then, you know, there's a whole halftime story beyond that of of going through the program, helping me process through that. So I'd love to hear from you both. Just, um, you talked a bit about your crucible experiences, because I'm guessing you would not be at halftime without those crucibles. One of the things I've learned probably over the last few months, last year is, is obviously listeners are very well aware of. Me growing up at 150-year-old, very large family media business and $2.25 billion failure. And I've begun to see that failure as um, a gift, as a blessing, in some sense, redemption. I never would have said that a few years ago. I would have said, yeah, God has used it for his purposes, but gift, redemption, blessing? I mean, I don't know. Those are strange words, but I'd love to hear just from both of you in, you know, in any order in terms of about your crucibles and what that did to you, both the pain and what you learned, because it's typically excruciating pain. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, for you, Tom, I mean, you've gone through some excruciating ones. I mean, one in particular, but they're both tough. So talk about both the pain and what you learned from the pain. You know, you know, it's interesting if I think about those two moments and of course there are, you know, anytime you have a failure, there's a pain associated with that. Right. So there are probably a lot of little things, you know, things you wanted or you thought you were going to do or be, and they didn't work out. Um, but even though one was professional and, and it's like, okay, so that's now what's happened. Now I can figure this out and what to do from it. The other one when uh, with our son, when he was battling his addictions, that the hard thing was you kept trying to fix it, but you know it's only he can only fix himself. And as a parent, it's just it just stays with you, right? You know, and you have that. We we have a number of friends who are still have uh, adult children, for example, that are that are struggling with different things, and and you know you see the the phone rings in the middle of the night, and you see it's his or her number, and you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't help but worry about what are you going to hear on the other end when they answer. And I mean, you just you wait, you go, you 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 want to hear something good. You want to talk to your child, but you, you're fearful of seeing them. It's just that's a hard it's an energy sucking place to be right. It's hard to focus on on. You know, I know people that throw themselves into work or throw themselves, but, but it's hard to balance that correctly in that in that space because you don't know when it's going to end. 
um, with with both when he was uh, when he uh, died in a motorcycle accident. He was actually in a halfway house down in, near Miami. And and when that happened is again as tragic as it was, kind of like getting passed over for motion. I mean, that's a finite act. And now you'd say, okay, now that this has happened, what do I do? You know, for for me, I guess the 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 pain of that, and and I think we've we've processed like my my son's journey pretty well as a family. You know, it hits all our kids different, it's my wife different. But but to have the privilege now, 13 years later, to look back and just see on both events, look back on when I when I got out of the Marines and how this whole career of things I never could have imagined opened up, you know, and or or seeing out of this tragedy for a home, how it drew actually our family closer together. And it made me, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you have a faith, you have to decide at that moment, is this real or not? You know, you can't just fake it anymore and say, I'll go to church and I, you know, God loves me and things are great because it, it's not. And you've got to decide, am I am I bought into this or am I not? And it it's it's strengthened my walk, which I then think falls into what am I doing and and doing things I haven't done before, which pushes you into another, you know, you start a you start a positive loop instead of a doom loop that brings you down. And I, I that's kind of how I would I would say it's played out to me. You know, there is that sort of alcoholics anonymous one day at a time kind of thing. And and boy, a lot of times it's like that. But uh, you know, I had a Marine that said, Hey, when you're going through hell, the worst thing you can do is stop going. You know, you gotta, gotta keep moving, gotta get through it. And 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 if you do that and you have a hope for something beyond, and and by by my faith that hope has really allowed me to get through the, the short-term things and to keep going. And I find myself now talking about how blessed I am. And it's not that I've forgotten about all that tragedy, but it's just in a perspective that allows me to feel okay about it. Yeah. And Tom, I've even, you know, had a chance to witness, you know, on a couple of occasions that the, the unique experience with your son, how, you know, other halftimers who have had maybe something similar in that, how you're able to use that experience to help them which is a real blessing, right? Yeah, it, it's a platform nobody wants, but it's a platform that gives you uh, or a story that gives you uh, um, um, an opening to almost any tragedy, right? I mean, you can talk to, you know, so as you would know. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah, what you said is so, um, so true. There's a lot there just in those twin tragedies. When you go through... Uh, Difficult times, as you know, we say on Beyond the Crucible, you have a choice. You can hide under the covers, be angry and bitter. In your case, it would have been very understandable to be angry at God. I mean, you know, the the perennial conversation that I think most people, if they're honest, even people of faith have, how could a loving God allow my son to yeah. be taken away? Couldn't he have done a miracle, healed his heart, changed his ways? And there's no good answer to that. There's other than it's easy to say, oh, God's sovereign will. That doesn't really cut it when you're in the midst of, of agony. I mean, I get the theology, but it's it's tough. And then being passed over in promotion when you, know, you want to make your parents, your dad proud, it's like, I thought I was going to be, because I think you've said early, in the military for my whole life. Yep. What is the deal here? I thought I was doing everything right. I mean, what did I do, go wrong? Maybe I don't know enough people in the right places, or I don't know, maybe I needed to politic more, or who knows? I mean, I don't, everything's different. You know, and I love the other phrase you used about, you know, when you're in hell, just you keep going to get through it. You know, we did a series uh, recently last fall uh, on loss and a number of folks who lost, you know, uh, spouses and just really challenging circumstances. They didn't use these words, but they all said pretty much you head into the storm, you head right for it. They all said that and they had very different backgrounds and that that. I've thought a lot about that, and that's really another way of saying what you said. And I like just the phrase that you used about your family. I haven't experienced what you've experienced, but I can imagine as best as one can, either that would tear your family apart and tear your faith apart or brings them together and brings your uh, faith, you know, gets your faith to a yeah. stronger place. Yeah. And certainly for me, you know, uh, I... You know, being a believer, I don't know, 40 years, I guess, last year. And when I lost the company in 1990, 
uh, either that destroys your faith or brings you closer. And for me, I just mm-hmm. clung to a closer, like a a man on a ship in a raging storm, you know, just clinging to the mast. And it drove me closer to Jesus, drove me closer to the Lord. So it's just fascinating that choice. You made choices in both those instances that you were not going to let it define you or destroy you, neither you or your family. Is that is that fair, Tom? You know, it, it really is, and, and, and it is a choice, right? Uh, part of the story, uh, try to keep it short, the, the night my son was killed, I just landed in Orange County, and I couldn't get home that night when my wife called me to tell me. And so I'm in the hotel room by myself, and I hang up the phone after talking to everybody, nothing I do but wait for the plane in the morning. And uh, as clear as I've ever heard God speak, I heard him say, Tom, do you believe what you say you believe? Because if you do, you need to see this differently. And that was kind of the defining, you know, put it in a perspective of, okay, is my faith real? Do I believe in this God? Like like Job that says, even if he slays me, I will praise him. And and so that hung on to that part of the story. I think I actually have it uh, right here is my son's my son's journal that uh, a daughter had uh, sent him. Uh, one of my daughters had sent him and he didn't, he when he died, the, the verse we put on his uh, little thing, a uh, memorial, a little handout for memorial service is John 11, I think it's 23 and 24, that says, he who believes in me will never die, and if he, even if he dies yet shall he live. And we put it on there, about three months later, we got his effects back, and this journal was in it. And the last entry he had written was that exact same verse. And, and to me, that was, that was really like, you know, and, and this is, I'll tell people, if you're in the middle of the junk, you gotta, you gotta look for God to do miracles. You gotta look for the miracles. You know, as I think about it, you know, Jim, your story is very different, but yet it's challenging in a different way. As you say, like the frog boiling, it's not like there's one event, but you know, if you believe in spiritual warfare, which would be a whole nother discussion, uh, in some ways, a smart play is not to kind of hit you over the head with a two-before, but kind of just slowly and slowly bore you until your faith that life is in a direction that you don't want. That's is an effective strategy. I'm sure you've known many people yeah. in halftime and others. Yeah. So just talk about, you know, your first one to go to college, you want to make something yourself, you're, you're successful, you're doing great, and I'm sure people are proud of you as they should be, but just talk about there's an insidious nature to your crucible that's subtle, and I'm sure it's pretty difficult to realize you're actually in one because so life is going pretty good, right? You're, you're doing well, making money. People are saying, yeah. Jim, this is great. You're doing better than anybody in your family. Good on you, as we say in Australia. So how do so you true. talk about that different kind of crucible yeah. that you went through and what you learned? Yeah, thank you. It's real perceptive because that's how I feel. I mean, I, um, I think, you know, that slow boil, I found myself in a situation where, you know, it was something I created you know, selfishly, I can look back on it now and go, you know, that whole path of success was really all about me. In fact, I had, I had created this persona of who I was that I had to live up to, right? And not Mm -hmm. only for my family, but for, um, you know, those who know me, all my friends and so forth. And so, you know, I was sort of, I was thinking it started just chasing the American dream, which I did. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I think, but the American dream sort of became all consuming. And I got to the point when I was 50, I think that's about the time when it peaked. You know, some would say maybe that's the midlife crisis. I don't know. There's a lot of events that happened when I turned 50. Um, and it, and I was in a pretty miserable spot. So if you, you know, if you knew me from the outside and you looked at me, you would think it was all great. But on the inside, I was miserable. I didn't have the joy that I, that you should have in life because I was waking up every day consumed by work and what I had gotten myself into. And I had no idea how to get off the treadmill. And I think, you know, we do this exercise and of course I wasn't smart enough at the time, but I'm, I'm better equipped now. You know, if you, if you said, Hey, here's, you know, list the things in order of what's really priceless to you in your life. And I know today that list would be the same as it was back then. It would be my faith, it would be my family. It would be my friends. Somewhere four or five would probably be my job, my career. But if I weighed that against where I was spending my time and, and all my time and, and, and literally consumption, it would have been work, work, work. And what that forced me to do 
is it really compartmentalized everything else, right? It was like, okay, what does a week look like? Well, I'm flying out on Sunday night. <laughs> I'm working 60, 70 hours and I get back and I got, okay, take the wife to dinner, check. I right? go to church on Sunday, check. Um, I'd compartmentalize, oh, go to the kid's baseball game or dance recital, check. I'm getting those things in. But I was literally living out of balance with who I said I was or who I wanted to be. And so I didn't realize it at the time. I was, it was just this, my life was being, you know, I would describe it as I was being fed, my ego, my pocket book were being fed by the career, but it was robbing me of my soul, right? Because I had nothing mm. left. It was taking all my energy. Um, and it took an event really to get me off of that because I don't know how I could have un unwound it. You know, I was so wrapped up in my own success and my persona of success, I, I didn't see a way to step out of it um, without something happening to me. Right. Hey, Warwick, I want to jump in here because there, there's something that's going on with what Jim and Tom have just described and in conversations I've had with them prior to our recording. And both of you have said, maybe on this on this episode, not in so many words, but you've said it in other places where I've talked to you that your entire identity was wrapped up in what you did, right? Whether that was your military career, whether that was just success. So explain uh, as we begin to move into the next stage of this conversation where the boat turns and you guys find your way out of the crucibles. Why is that such a dangerous, insidious thing for people to go through? Um, to to wrap up your identity. We've talked about it many times on the show, but to wrap up your identity in what you do, not in what, you know, who you are, if you will, not in in what is inside you, but what's outside you, what's external, what you do. Why is that such a dangerous, insidious thing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, because it can be, it's, it's a false narrative, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, go back to my faith. I know what the real truth is. And um, I was creating something that was different than the truth and then trying to live into it. And I think, you know, even if it's something like my story where, um, you know, so much of my identity was, was wrapped up into my career, most of us end a career. Then what? And one of the things that we deal with quite a bit with halftimers is people who have, like me, who dedicated so much of their lives to some professional achievement. And when that ends, um, they many don't expect it like I didn't anticipate it. Their whole identity is different. And and to to keep that identity wrapped up in that, it comes at a price, right? I mean, we only have so much time in a day. We only have so many days in a year. You know, you can easily get out of balance, right? I mean, if you had asked me, you know, how was your faith? I, I, I can, I would have described myself back then as Christian, but I look back now and I was a convenient Christian, right? I mean, God doesn't want my leftovers. I gave, I gave him my leftovers because that's all I had left to give. Now having, it's easier for me to look back having processed through that and I'm living a more balanced life and recognizing that there's so much more. Um, it's easier for me to understand how to prioritize what I do and where I can sacrifice. But but creating that false person that, you know, that gym's success, you know, is a hard thing to live up to. You know, this, by the way, the world loves it. Right. And this, this world, <laughs> like they want people like that because that, right. that is the American dream. And it's like, Hey, great. We'll throw in another title and we'll give you some more money. And it becomes addictive. I, I, I would admit I had it like a, a success addiction and to the point where it's, it's ironic that I'm on a show speaking of crucibles, because I think I was so far wired around being successful. I had a fear of failure. Right. And so a lot of what guided my decision-making was, was a fear of failure. Like I was never fired from a job. I don't know what that would have done to me. That would have been a huge failure. So I would navigate in such a way that I would avoid failure or a crucible because I was afraid it was that that was going to do to my identity, right? It would break the persona. You, you know, when, when your identity is outward facing instead of inward looking, right? It, it, it can lead to all sorts of problems. I mean, Having served in the military, I'll carry that the rest of my life, and there's a pride of that. And and you know, so when you when you are that, then you know that, that it you you think that's who you are. It, it's different, I think, even when you get in the marketplace as a businessman, because suddenly who you are is defined even more by what you do. 
what do you have? What do you thrive? Where do you live? You know, and so in that that case, in that one one of your identities, like like being a marine, is a little different. But in my case, you know, could be taken away because you're you move out of that. The other one, though, you you try to hang on to it so much by your own performance, and I think that's the real danger of an outward facing identity is you're always trying to say, okay, I've got to I've got to earn this, or I've got to do more. I've somehow got to make my identity better in the eyes of someone else, rather than looking internally and saying, I got to make my identity more pure or real. You know, I even, even coming into halftime, I, I had um, sort of a false expectation that halftime was just going to help me figure out what to go do next, but it would be significant, not, you know, selfish. And so, you know, one of the things that we do, we work on is helping you build a personal mission statement. And, and a personal mission statement is this phenomenal. It gives you clarity around, you know, who are you called, how are you called to do things in life, right, to be more significant. But one of the other things we do that I think gives balance to that, because quite often a, a, a mission can be a lot like success, right? Living a life of success in, in significance can look a lot the same. We try to complement that with a being statement, right, which is who are you really called to be, and when I think of that, that's way beyond just what I go do. It's it's who am I as a husband, as a father, as a friend. And so really getting clarity on who, who we're called to be is really important. You know, what, what you just said is so important. And I want to transition really to what you guys now do as co-chief uh, executives of Halftime and how you got there. And it started by a famous founder, Bob Buford, and you try to, you know, as all organizations need to evolve and grow and want to hear uh, more about that. But um, yeah, just the whole issue of identity for me, as listeners know, is being a Fairfax and a 150-year-old family media business that had about as much power and money as you could want, but it also had respect. Mm. Now, from the world's perspective, what more is there? Power, money, and respect. That's the trifecta. You've got it all, right? The community, whether it's left, right, whoever it is, everybody respected the Fairfax families, people that were really producing quality newspapers that were serving the nation of Australia. You had respect, honor, admiration, money, power, we had it all. So yeah, there was a, a lot of uh, identity wrapped up um, in that. But I remember when my father left as chairman of the company that sounds kind of biblical, was thrown out by some other family members, uh, invitations dried up you know, to embassy functions and big functions. It's like, well, you were invited based on your title, not who you are. Yeah, That's yeah. sobering when they say, you know, Jim, Tom, you were invited to this. We'd actually like you not to come because we didn't invite you as a person. Yep. It's not personal, but it seems extremely personal <laughs> at the time. So I, I want to make sure we get into what you guys do now. So talk about halftime, how it's evolving, but how you got there and kind of what your you guys' collective vision is for it moving forward. Because it's, it's tough to, you know, take on the reins of an organization that has a lot of respect and a lot of success and say, we love we love halftime. We, we want to kind of evolve it a bit. It's like, say what? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 you know, desecrating the sacred cow. You know, what would Bob Buford think? And obviously he's yeah, love his book, but he's passed a number of years ago. So just talk about how you got there and what your vision is, so to speak, for halftime. I think one of the things that's made this really a great balance with Jim and I is I knew Bob. You know, I was able to, he was there for me because his son, he'd lost his son. He was there for me when that happened. He was there to help me mentor starting my own company, working. He was the conduit for which my company was able to spend time working with nonprofits and churches, as well as Fortune 100 companies. And I knew him well. I actually designed the very first halftime sessions 20 years ago for him. You know, so I've got a hmm. history of knowing halftime, working with them, and then being around them all this time. Jim comes in through the fellows program with really fresh eyes, you know, and so, so it's really been a nice blend as we've looked at who who were we, who are we, and who do we want to be? Um, and, and when we when we took the job, we, we started, both of us, they had called me back into the sphere to help create a new global strategy. Jim was on the board and became part of the design team, and we were working together on this strategy. And one of the things we said was, and we were given the permission, we said, we're going to question everything. Uh, and so, including the idea of has, has halftime run its course you know it's 
25 years, maybe it's, you know, you know, maybe it's not supposed to be a full on ministry anymore. I mean, that, that's an option. And so as we, you know, you pray through that, you look at things, it's become a very, there are an awful lot of uh, ministries that do similar things now, right? Back when Bob wrote the book, he was pretty much the pioneer in this area. So, so we really had to take a look at where are we now and where do we want to go? And I, and I do remember I got a call from Linda Buford, Bob's uh, widow, and it, I, I've known her for a while, but but it, it was a, I really, she called me and said, hey, I understand you're looking at a lot of things, and, and even if you had to change the name and it was no longer halftime, Bob would be okay with that because you need to do what you think's best to carry this on, and I was like, wow, that was just mm. a, you know, I mean, there's a brand there. We we haven't changed it. We're going to hold on to that. And there's a lot of, but but how do you take something that is, it's got some baggage to it, but it is really well known. And how do we build on that? And we've, we've tried to do it, but we, we had a board of directors and stuff that gave us the option to look at all of that, which let us think out wide and then come back to what we thought was a, a balanced approach for the future. Yeah. And as, as Tom said, I think, you know, I, unfortunately, I, ne I never had the chance to meet Bob, although I think I, I really feel like I know Bob from this, being around so many people who whose lives have been influenced by him. Right? Um, but I came to to the table with with very fresh eyes when I finished the the fellows program in 2020 it was it was February of 2020 that the mentor who originally gave me the book years and years ago prior to that was on the board and, and asked me to join the board. And I thought. You know, we have this term we call low cost probes, right? You don't have to overcommit, but test things mm -hmm. out. And I mm -hmm. thought, ah, joining the halftime board would be a great low cost probe. Um, well, it, it didn't end up staying that way, but um, <laughs> it uh, it was uh, an opportunity for me, I think, to give. At, at the time, my perspective was, how could I give back to halftime? Because I had such a phenomenal experience, as I said, you know, in my bio, it's it was transformational for me, and I know we've transformed thousands of people's lives. But I also felt like there was more, right? There were some things like, for example, when our program ended, um, it was February of 20, it just ended, right? It was like, we were all together. I had a great cohort. There was uh, about a dozen of us and we just had a, an incredible experience together. And then it ended. And I thought, well, why does it have to end, right? Why, why not? If, if our lives are really transformed and changed, I, I realized I joined a program but in the essence, I really came to realize I joined this journey that's never going to end for the rest of my life. And for me, what really touched me was how can we help serve the journey? Warwick, you mentioned Ephesians 2.10, right? I mean, that's been our sort of our, our foundational scripture of helping people find their calling, which we do an incredible job at. But what, what we felt we were called to do is how do you help them not just find it, but live it out? And living it out means community and more connections and living intentionally. And so that's the big change from, hey, just come and do a program and then, you know, go forth and prosper. Um, really, really engage and stay in this community around the world. Yeah, that, that's so well said, uh, Jim. I know um, one of the things you've done with the rebranding is the old one was, you know, from uh, success to significance, you know, the first half of your life is for success and exactly. second half of your life, which, what does that mean? You know, 40s, 50s, you, know, you retire, gee, I've got uh, money and flexibility. I really want to use it for the Lord now. And I remember thinking in all honesty that there, there was something about that. And I just, eh, you know, I, you know, I read the yeah. book many years ago. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I try not to be judgmental. There's something about it that's like, mm -hmm. who am I to judge? But um, I feel like you've kind of, because then what do you do if you're a 20, 30 something right. that you want to seek God's purpose in your life? Yeah. And so you do what I did. So you talk put the about, book on the shelf and you pull it off 20 years later, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that's so, what I did. So talk about that. I love what you said, uh, Tom, about what, uh, you know, Linda Buford, you know, said he was so gracious. So, I mean, obviously, I think you saw some of that. So talk about how you, what the mission is now and how you made that transition without people saying, because there got to have to have been a few people that are saying, hang on, I don't think Bob would have liked this. And you said, well, you, Tom could have said, well, I've known him for decades. I think he would have, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, getting an, an argument done or get you there, but talk about that transition because you're not, you're not trying to make Bob Buford wrong 
but yet you're also trying to encompass people who are younger than 60 or 50 to be mm-hmm. direct, right? You want to cover everybody. So how did you make that transition and how would you define who you are now versus who you were there? So it had to have been difficult. Anytime you try to make a transition from a famous founder, that's not easy to do well mm-hmm. without antagonizing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I know that well from my own professional experience. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think uh, one of the things when we had those conversations is to separate the essence from the uh, the the way it's presented, right? So the essence of Bob Buford when he started, and I and I got to see that before there was a halftime ministry, there was Bob Buford who wrote a book. It touched people's lives, and they flew in to see him, and he didn't want anything from you. And so he didn't charge you anything. He was just helping you go do what you do. It was this... It was a movement that was created, right? And so part of what we thought about is over the years, because now it's got to be self-sustaining, it had had withdrawn from sort of being a movement into being a program that we could sell and measure numbers and things like that. So, So part of it, we felt, was we were actually trying to get back to what it was that Bob started, which was more of a movement. So, so at least that was, that was the spin we'd put on, right? Because that's what we believe that you really want to reach out. And so like, when we rebranded, the halftime logo was the word half, and then it had a line, and then it had the word time. If you look at it now, it's just one word, because we wanted to get rid of the sort of first half, second half, sort of success to significance. And, and talk about a halftime, like in sports, is just a moment when you say, you know what, I should take a pause here and decide who, you know, where am I and what is it I feel called to do, and then get back in the game. And that's that's kind of how we've tried to position it. And with so from a, we, we started in, in addition to halftime, building off the programs and the ways we help people do that, we've created a thing called Thousandfold. And we describe Thousandfold as a, a global impact community inspired by halftime. Because we didn't want it to be halftime alumni. We didn't want it to be something we own. We wanted it to be something that, that could potentially be a conduit to connect to all sorts of things happening out there. To, to give its members access to other members and resources and ideas to help them do whatever God's calling them to do. So we, we, we hope we're leveraging both and we're kind of getting back to what it was, but still holding on to the essence of who we are uh, and trying to, trying to apply it in a way that is applicable to, to your point to somebody who is not just Bob's story, right? That success to significance was Bob's story, built a company, sold it, went and did this. Especially today, there are an awful lot of people, as far as the younger uh, people in the market who are like, you know, they want to be successful and significant at the same time. They want to know their their, their business has worth. And so we, we want to help them say, okay, do you stay where you are and do something differently? Do you Are you being called to something? Are you, we, we want to be in those conversations, not, you know, once you're done, give us a call and we'll, you know. Before you move to Florida and, and take up the country club, give us a call. We can help you out. We really want to move out of that out of that space. Well said, mm-hmm. Jim. What's your take? Yeah, and I would just add. You know, I think the response has been real positive, and you know, so we we wanted to make sure that we would honor the legacy of what Bob created with halftime. And and again, it's got great brand equity, right? And our friends at Signal helped us to to understand that. So how could we how could we build on it? But also maybe reposition it, as Tom said, right? It's not just a one one and done. You get one shot at halftime when it's success to significance. What if we think of it as a pause of when you can take take some time to process things? You could have multiple halftimes in your life, right? Depending upon of different events. But then have this constant of thousandfold of this community that surrounds you that's of like-mindedness that can help you mm. accelerate help you deal with whatever you need to deal with on the ongoing journey, uh, not just in a one-year program. And so that that branding was something that we really wanted to make a bigger tent because we think it's big, it's potential to be bigger than just halftime. I love what you're saying about the way that you've defined halftime is not like it's cut in two, but it's funny. I tell everybody who's a guest on the show in describing how Warwick and I interact as host and co-host. If we were a sports commentating team, he's the play-by-play announcer. I'm the color commentator. Let's go into a sports context with you guys and halftime, right? How many times do we hear during the broadcast of a game about halftime adjustments? 
right? That's what halftime's for in football. That's what halftime's for in basketball. The coach is making adjustments. What maybe could have gone better in the first half? How are we going to change it to make it go better in the second half? So I think that's a, that is something I think people can get their arms and their minds around, hopefully, you know, pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. And there's also, there's also timeouts, right? So think about when you're calling a timeout, (laughs) when something's not going right, right? What do you do? You call a timeout and you, you process it. And I think, you know, in the essence of what halftime does, we can help serve in those timeouts as well. It doesn't have to be just the halftime, right? Of life. So, so like, what I wanted to have, for example, in September, uh, we published a book, uh, Women at Halftime, that was written by two of our women coaches. And if you think about a woman, you know, a lot of our halftime experience it, 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 programs and stuff have been aimed at uh, men and women who really have led a corporate kind of track, a business track. Well, in this case, what, what about the woman who, who started down that track and then maybe she decided to stay home for a while, you know, raise the kids or something, and now she wants to get back engaged? Or maybe she worked on something that she, she the, the point is she's taken a different track sometimes, but is still in the place of saying, you know, I'd really like to find out who I am. My wife is going through this now. Who am I outside of being a mom, a grandmother, you know, and a wife? And it's like, okay, how can we serve that person, you know, just as well as we can serve people who are right in the middle of doing what they're doing, but they don't want to wait to do something significant until they're older. We've got 25 years of experience. Can we figure out how to package it where we can make it available to help people where they are when they need it? That's our, that's our intent. You know, I love what you're saying, uh, Tom and Jim, just your courage to help halftime evolve. And yeah, I mean, Obviously, I've never met Bob Buford, but I'd like to think he would say, what you're doing is making my vision relevant to this generation and to more people, you know? And, you know, obviously, you would be in a better position, especially Tom, to know that. But yeah, and I love that concept of pause because you could be 18, 25, 35, 45, and you hit moments in time. You know, a young person might say, well, my my dad was a lawyer, but uh, you know, I'm in law school, but I don't know that I really want to be a lawyer. You know, maybe I like sculpting or right, something. Right. And it's like you've come to a bit of a mini crucible. Do I disappoint my parents? Do I keep going? So you can hit pauses at any stage of life and so true. just helping people realize living a life of significance and, uh, you know, from a halftime perspective and mine, living a life in line with God's purpose. That's a conversation that can never happen too soon. The earlier, the better. You know, and I mean, I love that. I mean, and for me, it's personal, right? I mean, I think based on my own personal experience, what I described to you, uh, two things. One is if I can help others, this is why I'm here, right? If I can help others process and transition through what I went through, that's a gift for me. But second is if I can avoid someone doing what I did, you know, who read the book at 25 or 30, whatever it was, and then ignored it. And I help those people. I'm, you know, I'm working with my son right now, who's turning 25 this year on, you know, the classic, don't do what your dad did. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sure you look back and think, gosh, uh, Jim, you know, if somebody had come to you when you're 35 and somebody that you respect would have had to have been and said, like, you're successful, you know, you, the sky's the limit, but you know, you can be successful and maybe have purpose and significance. Let's talk about that. That would have been a wonderful gift if you'd met somebody at 35 rather than 50 or, or whenever, and you're trying to help people in that stage. And Correct. Uh, in addition to the whole pause, which can happen at any time in life, I love what you both saying, Tom and Jim, about the whole concept of uh, community. I mean, amongst other things, I'm a certified International Coach Federation executive coach and Coaching, you know, is really about an ongoing engagement in a sense. You know, studies show that you can be trained at some great training and corporations spend millions of dollars, but typically it only lasts a few weeks and then the knowledge fades and you go back to how you typically operate. So it's not a good investment. So companies are evolving now into a model of uh, training and coaching. That's more today's corporate America, at least in the best areas. And in a sense, you're doing that in that you provide great training, but with this whole engagement and thousandfold model, it's like, okay, I understand I want to live a life of significance. I want to live a life on purpose. What's God's purpose? And this has come up and 
should I leave or not leave? Because maybe this is God's plan, maybe it's not God's plan. And what do you do in the day-to-day trenches, so to speak? That's where that community can make all the difference in taking people's life to a whole other level. So this is, I don't know about Buford, but I would have thought he would say, this is awesome, right? I mean, I guess you probably can't help but ask that question, but does that make sense, both of you? Trying to discern that on your own is, I mean, I can't imagine trying to go through this on my own. There's just no way I would have ever been capable of figuring that out. And and my cohort, as an example, was so helpful, I, I think, to each other. We were We helped each other, and we still do to this day. I mean, helping you think through some things and process it because you're not you're not alone, right? So it's yes, the coaching is really a core element, you know, as well as some of the content. But the cohort, really, you're surrounding yourself with, um, you know, a peer advisory group if you think about it that way, and and who are who have no vested interest other than your interest, which is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, you know, and along those lines, I was thinking from the crucible idea. I mean, you know, I think a lot of time even churches or ministries paint this idea that somehow if you get into that kind of work, your life's going to somehow be grand and you're not going to be problems. You know, and I mean, crucibles come up all over the place and you've got to, you know, you've got to work through them. The, the community idea, we had a we had a thousand phone call. Um, I think it was Wednesday morning I was on it. And one of the guys on there was talking about he lives up in Ohio and uh, uh, he's still doing low cost probes. He's not sure what, you know, what's next. That afternoon, um, I got a call from a former halftimer who said, hey, we're looking for an executive director for ministry in Ohio. Do you know anybody that that might? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if this is meant to be or not. But when I meet this guy in the morning and you call me in the afternoon, I've got to at least put you guys together and let you talk about it. Right. And and. What we want to enable are those kind of interactions all over the place, and and that's where you know, that that's the hope because you can be out there if you're if you're on a journey to really discover who you are, and what you would be at your best, and what you how you could be most fulfilled. If you're not careful, that can be a lonely journey. You start to turn too much inward, right? And and, and the hope here is that we can connect you to others on the same journey to help you you know, do it in community because we're relational beings. I think it's the way it should be, should be done. This is the time in the show where I normally say, that sounds you heard, the captain turn on the fasten seatbelt sign, plane's going to land, but come on. We've been talking about halftime all the time. We've been making sports metaphors. So I'm going to say <laughs> the time has arrived, and I'm going to say this because I have a fellow Packer fan in this call with me um, in Jim. Uh, um, I'm going to say it's the fourth quarter and the two-minute warning. Uh, has just come upon us. At this time, as we take a, a break, as we take a little bit of a time out here, I would be remiss, guys, if I didn't give you the opportunity to let people know how they can get in touch with you and some of the things that you offer. And also to ask you this question as you as you tell people how they can find you, what would you say is the question, right? As people hear this, as our listeners hear this, what question that fires in their mind is one that you can help with um, if they're getting that question. They're hearing this stuff. It's it's stirring some things up in their spirit of, about what they should do next. So let people know how they can find you and, and what are some of the things they might be thinking that you can help them with? Um, well, so the easiest way to find us would be you can go to halftime.org or thousandfold.org and they'll cross-reference each other, but it's got quite a bit of information out there about um, – you know, what, what we do and what we can provide and, and how you can get in contact with someone. Regarding the question, you know, we often refer to this sense of smoldering discontent, you know, which goes back to the book when, when Bob wrote it. So if, you, if you're feeling, I, I, it's funny, I have this story, this guy that we, we went to it and did a session with, and he said, I, I, don't, I don't really identify with smoldering discontent, but I got, I got this feeling like God has something more for me. And I'm not quite sure what it is, and I need to I need to figure that out. And I said, you just defined smoldering discontent. <laughs> so you did get it. So I think it's that it's that it's an inner feeling. It's an inner sense that things just aren't aligned, right? That there's some, maybe there's something more or something different from where I'm at today. And that is probably the, the you know, the big broad theme of what we help people think through and process through in halftime. And it's very powerful and and people, you know, it's a very intentional process and we give people permission and the tools and the, and the surrounding uh, uh, with other people 
to, to process that. Maybe the only thing I'd add is one of, one of the things that we, we now talk about, and we've talked about it for years, but kind of honed in on it, the idea is we, we like to work with people to help them get clear, get free, and get going. And, and I think if, again, the smoldering discontent, I want to get clear on who I am and, and what I'm told to do. I want to get free of the things that are stopping me from doing that. And then I want to get going. I want to get about it. And with thousandfold and, and halftime both, we think we've got a full ability to support that. And we, one of the things we've learned is that that sequence is really important, right? If you just, you know, get you try to get going first, you kind of trade one treadmill for the other. Mm-hmm. You know, you can run a ministry or nonprofit and work more hours than you did when you were in the corporate world. Or if you try to get free first, it seems like you just never do. I need a little bit more. I need some, you know, well, boy, I'm, I'm going to do it. But but if you get clear, then it becomes something you can't not do. You know, the, there's an old French poet, Bob used to quote, that said um, uh, something about uh, you, you, uh, your destiny will follow you like an accusing shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you come in touch with what you think your destiny, maybe you can't not do it. I, I feel called to that. And I think we're fairly uniquely positioned to help you think through that and move forward. And and it's certainly our heartbeat to help, you know, men and women do that. So just as we end, there might be a businessman or woman that could be anywhere from twenties to fifties to sixties, and maybe they're successful. They've got good grades. Life is good. Maybe they've had some speed bumps, but they're just, maybe they don't even have time to think. What would a word of hope or maybe a word that would actually stop them in their tracks and make them think a bit uh, so that they're not coming to you at like, you know, 85 and they're on their deathbed and, you know, gosh, what do I do now? You don't really, that's not your target market, right? People who've, you know, at that point, I mean, you'll do whatever you can, but you want to hit them a bit earlier than 85, I'm <laughs> guessing. So, you know, not judging here, but what would a word of hope or a word that maybe stop people in their tracks so that they would think about life and half time and God's purpose. Mm, that's a great question. I mean, the what the thing that comes to mind for me is um, intentional. If if you if you intentionally if you feel that smoldering discontent, you have to be intentional about following up on it. You know, my my personal lesson learned is I, I was really good at suppressing that and just filling my time, continuing on that treadmill. And it wasn't until I was intentional about um, a, a freedom of jumping off that treadmill that things changed. And now I look back at it and, and, and say, why did I wait so long? Right. I mean, all, you know, I got over the regret of, boy, if I had done this 15, 20 years ago, it could have changed my path, but I, but you can't get hung up on that. But I, I would really want to encourage people of, you know, there's no time like the present to start um, because um, they'll never be the perfect time to do it. Yeah, uh, Bob interviewed me a, a number of years ago for a book he was writing, and and, and my quote I had forgotten it until now. As I said, you know, there's the risk you can't afford to take, and there's the risk you can't afford not to take. And if you, you know, if you're if you're in your twenties and you've got little kids and diapers, I mean, you you're probably full on, right? I mean, you, it's hard to think of more, but but that season you will move on from that. And, and, and if you just keep putting it off that, like I said, when I get to this stage, I'm going to think of something more about me or more about what I'm called to do or whatever that rarely does that come. Uh, I love Jim's word on intentionality. I mean, there are things you can intentionally, you can begin reading books now about who are you and what do you think you're called to be? If you can't do anything else about it, there, there are ways you can start to be intentional at any stage of your life to be uh, you know, live this life of uh, something that's significant, something that's really fulfilling and gives you the abundance that you were created for. That sound you heard, listener, was the final buzzer indicating that our conversation with Jim and Tom uh, has come to its very rich and very robust conclusion. Until the next time that we are together, uh, we ask that you remember the the principles that you heard in this conversation. And that is we understand for sure that your crucible experiences are difficult. They hurt. They can linger after you've gone through them. But if you learn the lessons of them, if you keep, as Warwick says often now, keep going toward the, the battle, keep going toward the storm. If you keep doing that one foot in front of the other, baby steps, keep doing that. 
that is not the end of your story, that crucible. In fact, it can be the beginning, the launching point, dare we say, halftime, a pause as you move forward, because what ends up happening if you follow that path is you will, you will reach the best story of your life, because where it ends is at a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.